This podcast is sponsored by Prime Super, straightforward superannuation solutions that empower you to grow, manage and protect your wealth and retirement income. That's Prime Super. Go to primesuper.com.au to learn more. I'm with the independent candidate for the Victorian seat of Indi, Dr. Helen Haynes. Helen, thank you very much for joining us. That's my pleasure, Connor. Um, first off, the question, as I was writing these questions, I was just trying to think, the way politics stand at the minute, what could possibly compel a person to stand for office? Yeah, it is indeed an act of courage, Connor, but it's an act of courage based on a widespread community concern that we are unhappy as a nation, and indeed there's a trend across the world, that citizens are unhappy with the level of representation that they're getting in their parliaments and in Australia in particular there's a widespread distrust of politicians and uh, political debate. So I'm standing because I'm one of those people who has been dissatisfied. I've seen that there's a better way of doing politics and that better way of doing politics has been led uh, by a community group here in the federal electorate of Indi where I live Mm -hmm. and uh, that was the Voices for Indi group who worked closely uh, with Cathy McGowan and saw her elected to Parliament in 2013. Mm-hmm. And um, Cathy's shown us a different way of doing politics, and I want to follow in that in that mould. So talking about Ms McGowan, um, she won Indi from former Liberal frontbencher Sophie Mirabella in 2013. She herself is a former, McGowan is a former Liberal staffer. Would you say you are Liberal in your politics? No, I wouldn't. Um, I wouldn't say that. Uh, and I wouldn't say that Cathy was either. So, indeed, Cathy was, uh, for a short term, a staff member for a Liberal politician. Um, I've had no no political uh, career background at all. I'm completely a citizen politician. Uh, my my uh, background in politics has been very much from an intellectual level and an observer and a, and a, and a voter. And, uh, yeah, my persuasions, I, I wouldn't group into any particular category other than I'm concerned about the state of our political engagement and debate. I'm concerned about our lack of policy around climate change and I'm concerned about rural health and uh, very much concerned about access to very high quality rural health services for Australians. So that's my motivation rather than any particular political persuasion. Mm -hmm. And so now this is probably a bit of uh, my lack of knowledge, but I didn't know too much about... um, the Voices for Indy, uh, there's been some talk recently about the selection process and donations. Um, so Voices for Indy aren't a political party. Why? And can maybe tell us a bit about them? Yeah, great. I'd love to tell you about that. So Voices for Indy is a community group. They're not a political party. It would be in lots of ways easy to be a political party. If, if you're a political party, you can accept donations all year round, for example. Uh, you, you're not compelled to uh, divulge any information because political parties are one of the very few groups that don't have to comply with privacy obligations, something mm-hmm. that I think many Australians don't know. But the, the community group Voices for Indi deliberately set themselves up as a group of people where you don't need to have uh, paid membership, where anyone can come along and bring any view that they wish and have that discussed in a respectful, open way. It's really about doing politics differently and giving ordinary citizens the chance to participate and to find ways to bring forth alternative ways of uh, citizens being involved in the parliamentary process without having to be part of a political party. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
Yeah, so it, it's quite a it, it's quite a, a fantastic uh, new way, I think, mm-hmm. of looking at politics in Australia, and and I think it's also fantastic that this has emerged in rural Australia, mm-hmm. where uh, I think many great and innovative ideas have come, and uh, groups like the Voices for Warringah, uh, which has recently had national press with supporting Sally Stegall. Uh, they came to the Voices for Indi workshops and they've been down here to speak to us on, on numerous occasions about how it is we manage to get grassroots involvement in uh, in political discourse. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to hear a bit about how you ended up here. You've you've lived and worked, I think, in Indi for about 30 odd years. Uh, where did you grow up? Yes. Connor, I grew up on a dairy farm in southwest Victoria, mm-hmm. out on the Western Plains with right. my four brothers and my parents. So spent my childhood in rural Victoria. I then went off and um, did my education and training as a nurse and a midwife mm-hmm. at St Vincent's Hospital in Melbourne and then at the Mercy Hospital for Women. Right. And from, from there, I moved up to northeast Victoria and worked as a, a nurse and a midwife. And then uh, over time, uh, went into academia that have spent yeah, all, all 30 years of my uh, post post initial education and training in uh, in rural health up here in northeast Victoria. Mm-hmm. And I, I read um, on I think on the Melbourne Uni website that you ended up in Uppsala, Sweden, doing a PhD in medical science uh, and reproductive health. How did you end up yes. there? <laughs> You've done your homework. Oh, this is a classic case, really, of um, I guess seeking out opportunity. So when I was working as a midwife here in Wangaratta, I was one of the founding members of a, a, a new model of care for providing continuity of midwifery care for rural women. It was called the Wangaratta Community Midwife Program. Mm-hmm. And while I was doing that program, it became really abundantly clear to me that uh, midwives really needed to be playing a much bigger role in public health using their encounters with women to uh, to work with women around key public health messages. So I decided I'd do a Master's in Public Health and uh, enrolled for that program with the University of New South Wales. Mm-hmm. And in undertaking that program, I started reading widely and I came across some excellent research articles from academic midwives at the University of Uppsala in Sweden. And being a, you know, a bit cheeky, well, maybe not cheeky, but being a curious person, I emailed uh, the authors of those papers and told them how interested I was in their work and asked them the question, how, how could how could a person like me from a town like Wangaratta come and spend some time uh, with them to mm-hmm. learn a bit more? And uh, so without giving you the whole long story, uh, it came to pass that they invited me to come across and I spent six months with them in the Department of Women's and Children's Health at Uppsala University, which is also a WHO collaborating centre for international reproductive health. Mm-hmm. And they invited me to stay after I finished my master's program and take on a PhD with them. And uh, I had a young family at the time and had to say, I would love to, but no, thank you. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually, eventually I did do that. So um, I was engaged then through my contacts at Uppsala and took up a cross-cultural study um, of uh, women childbirth, uh, during childbirth here in Wangaratta and with a, a partner site in, uh, in Sweden. And I completed my PhD in 2012 in Uppsala, travelling backwards and forwards and doing a lot of work online late at night and very early in the morning using Skype and whatever technologies I could. 
And following that, I was lucky enough to win um, a postdoctoral scholarship and uh, spent a postdoctoral period uh, studying fathers and uh, the perinatal period at uh, the Karolinska Institute in Stockholm. So, yeah, I've spent a lot of time in Sweden in my academic life. It's pretty amazing, I think, especially for someone from a rural area, um, and I don't think it's potentially a a lot of people take. Um, What did you learn from the Swedes in terms of their approach to health? Yeah, Connor, um, I think lots of people in Australia look to the Nordic countries for inspiration around public education and public health. Mm -hmm. So it was indeed, and it still is, I I still go back there uh, every year because I have uh, doctoral students there. It was indeed a great opportunity just to see, I suppose, a more overarching public policy setting for both health and education. So I guess what I've learnt from the Scandinavian countries and Sweden in particular is that some of the structural barriers that we have to optimising health and education, and those things both just fit hand in glove, I tend to talk about them as as almost one and the same, um, are that we, we need to provide opportunities and avenues for people to access good health and education. So some of that comes from alleviating poverty, uh, about having economic policy that encourages people from all backgrounds to participate in society and have an opportunity to get the highest level of education that they can. Um, free free healthcare uh, across the life spectrum is uh, bread and butter in in Sweden. There is some private health uh, availability now, but but essentially it's all entirely public. So that means uh, an equity an equity policy, which uh, is is overall better for population health. I think that um, the Scandinavian approach is one of the greater good. So that that really dominates public discourse around health and education. Mm-hmm. So I guess in, in, in taking that to the Australian context, we too have a universal public health system. I, I cherish it. It's crucial to the overall well-being of Australia. It's absolutely crucial to thriving communities. So uh, you know, I'm a great champion for free public health care and a great champion for free public education because that's the ticket, really. That's the ticket to prosperity for everyone. Mm-hmm. I would agree. Um, looking at most of the stuff I could find on your academic career, and obviously it's your background uh, in nursing, it's focused on midwifery. What drew you into that kind of quite specific area of nursing and academia? Yeah, so it's it's funny that life sometimes takes you into places that you hadn't necessarily planned. And um, I really enjoyed in my nursing career, I really enjoyed um, emergency care nursing, actually. And I was thinking that I would probably take that path or critical care, something like that. Um, <laughs> but this is part of country life, Connor. When I arrived in Wangaratta as a young nurse, I was signed up to start work in the emergency department. And that very day when I arrived for work, I got a call from the nursing supervisor to say, Helen, I believe you're a midwife. We're really short of midwives today. Could you go down and work in the labour ward? Sure, I said. So down I went. I loved it. It was great. The people were terrific. And essentially, I just kept coming back. Uh, so I found myself really drawn to midwifery in the rural setting and uh, I think what I hadn't appreciated 
being a midwife in a metropolitan centre, which was very technocratic, uh, was that in a, in a rural centre, the role of the midwife was, was such a fundamental one and so crucial right across the whole spectrum of care. So it was really a great place to work. And again, it, it opened my eyes, I think, to that the absolute sheer importance of getting things right at the beginning of life. So understanding that if, if we set families up through really engaged, high-quality healthcare right at the very beginning of pregnancy or even before, ideally, then that family and that little child has such a better chance of a fully engaged and healthy life. So that really appealed to me. I think that was, I think midwifery is fundamental public health mm-hmm. and public health is a, uh, is a great, great uh, uh, passion of mine. Yeah. And eventually, and now, I believe you are the director of the Rural Health Academic Network. Um, and, you know, I've, from my reading, you've, some of your recent research interests are in older persons and nurse practitioners in rural residential care, which seems to me yeah. very topical um, with the Royal yeah. Commission coming up. And I know you've had some interest yeah. in aged care. What are your observations of the state of elder care in this country? Yeah, so Connor... Uh, absolutely, and, and people are sometimes sometimes surprised because a lot of my academic research is at the other end of the life life cycle. Yeah. But I'm interested in I'm interested in whole of life care really because every part of it is connected, and families families comprise of young people, old people, and everything in between. So um, at the moment, you're quite right. Uh, the care of our older Australians is absolutely under the microscope with the Royal Commission and I really welcome that because we have all seen some horrifying examples of, uh, of poor treatment of our very vulnerable and greatly loved older family members. That's a really important piece of work. It's focusing mostly on residential aged care. Mm-hmm. I'm deeply concerned about that like most other Australians are, but I'm equally concerned that we put aged care into context of community and many, many older people are not living in residential aged care. So I'm really uh, interested in models of care in in nursing and in in medicine and allied health, health services more generally, that can really foster the best possible life experiences for older people living in the community and ensuring that when and if a transition happens to residential aged care, that it's as positive as as it can be. So so programs like um, age-friendly communities, for example, I think are, are really encouraging and, and a fabulous step forward in whole-of-community approach to, to seeing old people in and around us, to ensuring that the environment that they, that they live in is safe and friendly and inclusive. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm interested uh, across all aspects of aged care. I, I do sit as a board member on a residential aged care facility and, and that's a fantastic way of, of having some actual say around the, the, the quality of care, the type of care that the people in that institution receive. Um, but bigger than that, it, it's about inviting other people in as well. And I think one of the one of the problems we've had with residential aged care facilities is that they're very closed shop. That we only walk through the doors when we absolutely have to, if mm-hmm. we're visiting a, a family member or a friend. And, and I'd like to see uh, an Australia where aged care is much more open than that. And is, is that why we found ourselves at, at this point now? Um, you know, it, it's something seen and, uh, you know, not heard. It's kind of there in the background. The death literacy and elder care literacy in Australia is, is pretty low. 
Yeah, I, I think that's a, a, a key component. I guess the, the Royal Commission will unpack a lot more for us, Connor. Um, but I, I think you hit on something really important. I think that as as a, a community, we need we need to be much more in the business of talking about the ages and stages of life, whether that be at the very beginning and providing the support and encouragement and loving environment that a pregnant woman needs, and an, and early parenting that that young mothers and fathers need, and I emphasise fathers as well because they need lots of encouragement and support. Mm-hmm. And at, at the other end, we we need to be talking about. You know, we all know we're not going to live forever, but we're so bad at dealing with that in a way that, that sets us all up for transitions. So I, I would like to have many more open conversations with that as a community. So it's not so scary, but it's actually a conversation where we're all involved and we can openly discuss some of the things we're afraid of, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And uh, coming back to now, the mm. election slated for mid-year. Uh, it's a bit of a yeah. long campaign since you've come out uh, already. Are, are you still yeah. working while you're sort of campaigning, or? Well, that's a very timely question. Um, I, I have, uh, I, I am an, a person who occupies an office of profit under the Crown, right. under Section 44 of the Constitution, as uh, someone who works in the public sector, both yep. in the hospital sector and in the university sector. So I am compelled. At the time that the nominations go to the AEC, I must have resigned my positions. So uh, I have to stop work. Um, mm. I can't take a leave without pay. So it's a very big commitment. And yeah. yesterday I, I attended my resignation with the university. Jeez. Um, a very difficult decision and painful one because mm. I love my work. Are you but ready to I do am... that? I know you've spent <laughs> I know you spent some time in Kathy McGowan's office here and there volunteering, but yeah. are you ready to yeah. leave academia, a life's work and go full-time politics? I am ready for that. Uh, I had to be ready for that when I agreed at the community forum to accept the invitation to run. So while I'm ready, it doesn't mean it doesn't uh, cause me some pain. Mm -hmm. It does cause me pain because I'd love my work. But I feel that if I am successful and elected uh, to sit in Parliament, I will have many, many opportunities to influence at a policy level around rural health and around public health. So Mm -hmm. I, um, I take that as the... As the challenge for me, um, I have to get elected first and subsequently that's why I'm resigning from my work a little earlier than I need to Mm -hmm. under the law because it's a massive job as an independent to get out there with 27,000 square kilometres of Indi and I need to get up and down that community and people need to get to know me. Many people already know me through my work but um, lots of people of course do not and um, they need to see my face and and I need to see theirs and they need to uh, have the opportunity to ask me questions and to formulate an opinion as to whether they give me their trust and uh, would vote for me when when the day of the election comes and I sincerely hope they do, Connor. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm working closely, of course, with Cathy McGowan and Cathy uh, is, uh, is... mentoring me and uh, taking me along with her when I can attend to meet people and to participate in the work that she's already doing so I can get a good understanding of that. So this time next year, uh, you are the independent MP for Indi. Uh, The PM comes up to you in the halls, whoever that PM might be, and says, uh, Helen, the healthcare system, what's the most pressing issue and what can we do to fix it? What what are you going to tell the PM? Well, the first thing I would say is there's never just one pressing issue. And one of the key things I think I could bring to to parliamentary life and to 
political discourse is having a broader conversation about the many things that contribute to poor health. So there isn't just one thing. It's really about aligning multiple components and structures. As I said at the beginning, it's about economic prosperity that's inclusive of all people. So if we want to fix healthcare for the greater number, we need to ensure that the greater number of people have equal access to high-level education, training and the opportunity to get a good job. Because the key component, the one thing we know about public health is that a key driver for poor health is poverty. So you know, that, that's a very big discussion and, and, and it's that kind of discussion I'd like to see underpinning policy development in, in our parliamentary life. So I would be saying that to the Prime Minister. There's not just one simple thing. It's many things. But from a rural health perspective, I'd say to the Prime Minister, we need to work closely right across Australia to have a strategy for rural and regional Australia. At, at present, we have no strategy. We have no plan. We have short-term projects, we have short-term funding rounds, but we don't have a long-term plan. And that's what I'd like to see for rural and regional Australia, and particularly for rural health. Uh, so I'd like to see the infrastructure, the connectivity that we need, and the opportunities for education and access to high-quality health professionals in order to fix many of the problems that we have in rural Australia. I think uh, sometimes when... Uh a candidate such as yourself comes in from a specific area, like you're coming in from health and nursing, um, it can be difficult mm. for them. But are you, as an independent Helen Haynes MP, okay with being a voice for nurses and health professionals in Canberra? Absolutely, I am. I, I'm, I'm, I'm a champion for nursing and midwifery. I'm a champion for healthcare in general. I'm a champion for all my colleagues that I've worked for so many years with, the doctors, pharmacists, physios, OTs, speeches, all of allied health, um, all of nursing and midwifery because we work collectively as a team. So I don't stand for one or the other, but my professional background is nursing and midwifery and, and I would hope that by becoming a public figure that I've, I'm some kind of positive role model for nurses and midwives out there to feel that, yes, they have a very important voice in public policy because of the work that they do and the lived experience they have of, of the impact that poor public policy can have on people's health. So, yep, I'm, I'm very happy to uh, to carry that, that banner, Connor. Um, but again, I would say that as an independent, and particularly as a rural independent, I'm not a single-issue person, not at all. I'm not standing for a particular ideology. I'm, I'm standing for reason, for respect, for trustworthy behaviour, and for thorough hard work in interrogating public policy with good evidence and with a process that puts a lens over it that considers how does this public policy impact on people in rural and regional Australia? How does it impact on the national good? How does it impact globally? So looking at it from a very structured perspective. Helen Haynes, good luck with the campaign and thanks very much for joining us. Connor, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to speak with you today.